Hi, I'm Lauren. My pronouns are she, her. And this is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we travel back to Victorian England, we keep our secret, and I speak to my amazing guest, Katie Lumsden, about the secrets of Hartwood Hall. So, hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, hello. Can you please introduce yourself for our listeners before we get started on your book? Sure. So, my name's Katie Lumsden, and The Secrets of Heart Hall is my debut novel. It's my first book. So, I've been writing for a while, but this is my first published book, which is exciting. Um, and I'm from London. I work in publishing. I'm a freelance editor, and I also have a YouTube channel where I talk a lot about Victorian literature, which is something I love a lot, which is kind of where The Secrets of Heart Hall has come from, I guess. How did you get into YouTubing? Oh, so um, I just I got into it through watching lots of YouTube and lots of BookTube. And um, so there is a very nice corner of the Internet um, corner of YouTube called BookTube, which is just full of people discussing books. And I started watching BookTube when I was maybe sort of 20, 21. Um, and I really enjoyed hearing other people talk about books on YouTube. And I thought maybe I would like to do that, too. So I started making my own videos nearly eight years ago now so it's been a long time um, and when I started on BookTube there weren't many people talking about classics it was mostly there was sort of a big YA community and there was a big literary fiction community that was kind of newer but there weren't very many people talking about classics now there are there are a lot of us talking about classics on YouTube which is lovely and I just really enjoy it it's been really good fun and it's a really nice community um, and it's been really lovely in the kind of run up to the release of my novel as well because lots of people who watch my booktube channel are excited about the book which has really made a big difference it feels slightly like you know it's a slightly weird thing um when your first novel is published so it's nice to have kind of like a community who are there and who are excited um that kind of makes a big difference as well I guess and what kind of advice do you think you would give to someone who has maybe only read these kind of classics for GCSEs when we have to read them we have no choice and then obviously we leave school we can pick what we study and people never have to think about the classics again but what can you say to people to actually get them a little bit excited about it if they're not? So I think the thing to think about is there are different ways you can use the word classics I think when some people say classics they mean uh, sort of canon I suppose like really really famous books when I use the word classics and when I talk about classics on YouTube what I usually just mean is old books because some of the books I'm reading are you know very famous it's Jane Eyre and it's been firmly in the canon a lot of people read it but I also read a lot of more obscure classics that are you know a bit forgotten or out of print that I'm finding online or whatever and actually the thing about reading old books books from the past is that they are just books and actually a lot of them are really fun and I think one of the issues that people have when they're reading classics is that they start reading classics in school and they're taught, you know, this is a book to analyse, this is an important book. And because it's an important book, you need to take it seriously. And that, I think, takes a lot of the fun out of it. So, for example, I really love Charles Dickens. And I think people who are told to study Charles Dickens in school or maybe people who haven't read Charles Dickens think that Charles Dickens' books are really serious because they're, you know, big important classics but actually Charles Dickens's books are exceptionally silly they're very very funny they were very commercial like he was writing commercial fiction in his time he wasn't writing the upmarket stuff his books were looked down upon a little bit he was writing properly commercial fiction they're really plot driven they're really character driven and I think sometimes people approach classics thinking I have to analyze this book and actually that's 
that's the wrong way to think about it because actually it's just a book and you should just enjoy it for the story and the characters. A lot of Victorian literature, especially, which is what I love, is very, very plot driven. Um, you know, the Victorians wrote a lot of sensation fiction, which, you know, they're basically thrillers and they are very plot driven. And there's a lot of Victorian literature that is really, really fun. And actually, if you forget about analysing it, if you forget about, you know, understanding every word necessarily, then you can enjoy it much more, I think. I think one of the reasons why I really like Victorian literature and why I don't find it difficult is because I started reading Victorian literature when I was 13. And at that point, I was young enough that I didn't understand all of what I read in general. So when I was reading a Dickens book, age 13, I didn't understand everything, but I didn't usually understand everything I read. So it didn't bother me. So I didn't look up every word or look up every cultural reference. I just read and went with it. And if some stuff went over my head, that was kind of fine. And I feel like actually that that could be a much more enjoyable approach to reading classics is just to read it, be along for the ride and see what happens rather than kind of worrying about analysing it, I suppose. I need to read Jane Eyre and it's something I keep telling myself I'm going to read it I'm going to read it I'm going to read it but I still haven't. Oh you should it's very good. Another thing actually I would recommend is audiobooks. I love listening to classics on audiobooks and I think that is sometimes a way to make it more accessible especially because if there's something you don't understand it does just literally wash over you as you're listening and I think a lot of Victorian literature especially works really well on audiobook because in the 19th century, people used to read to each other. Like that was a common family activity because you didn't have TV. So you just sit around and read a book out loud, which means that a lot of Victorian literature was written kind of with that in mind. So Victorian books work fantastically on audiobook. And that can be kind of a easy, more accessible way to get into a, into classics and Victorian literature sometimes, I think, as well. That's really cool. That's something that I didn't know. But I guess it makes sense because mm-hmm. they didn't have as much to sort of entertain themselves with. It was a lot more yeah. homely. Yeah. What do you like to read that's not Victorian literature? Because we always ask this question and I know you love Victorian literature, but apart from that. Lots of other stuff. I feel like I like reading most things, many things. I love historical fiction. Like I read a lot of contemporary written historical fiction, some of which are set in the Victorian period, some of which are set in other times. Um, So I think two of my favourite historical fiction writers are Natasha Pulley and Diane Setterfield, both of whom I really, really like their books. But I also like, you know, sort of reading group fiction, sort of the more accessible end of literary fiction. I quite like lots of genres. I quite like a rom-com. I quite like some fantasy. Um, I quite like reading Japanese literature in translation. Um, I like reading a lot of classics that aren't Victorian as well. Um, so what I've been doing for the last few years is every year I set myself sort of an international classics challenge. So I pick a few countries that I haven't read very many classics from and I try and read a few classics from those countries to kind of like expand my classics horizon, I suppose. I got very into Victorian literature as a teenager and as a teenager, I basically just read Victorian literature and nothing else. Um, but actually, I'm really interested in history in general and I'm not just interested in Victorian history. So reading classics from lots of different time periods and lots of different countries and lots of different places, it's something I really enjoy because it gives you a little insight into a bit of history that maybe you didn't know about. So that's something else I try and do as well is sort of read classics from, yeah, lots of different time periods and places. That sounds like such a cool idea. Maybe I need to do that. It's like a mid-year thing, like a six-month small challenge like that. I think that could be really good fun. Yeah. I really want to talk about the cover of the book because, oh my God, it's stunning. It looks like wallpaper, like feature wallpaper. Yeah. 
Which is the point. And, you know, the Victorians did love a good floral wall. Did you have notes for the cover? Did you kind of know this was what you wanted or did you just see it one day, like in your inbox and be surprised? Yeah, not at all. I was just um, sent it and loved it. It wasn't what I was expecting, actually. Um, I feel like the US cover was slightly more what I was expecting, which is, which has like a house and a figure on the front um, and kind of is a bit more sort of tells you a little bit more about the story, I suppose, um, which I think actually is, I think in general, American covers do tend to tell you a little bit more about the story than UK covers. I love that it looks like wallpaper, like it looks a bit like a William Morris print, but also it's got that ripped back corner, which I really, really like. And also it's wallpaper, but also it's flowers and uh, sort of undergrowth and like the woods are quite important in the secrets of Hartwood Hall. There's this, you know, big spooky house in the middle of woods, kind of surrounded by forests. Um, and there's also like a gardener character who's quite important. So I really like all the sort of natural imagery on the cover and I really like the corner. Yeah, I really like it. I think if I came home and someone had hung wallpaper up like this on like a feature wall in my house, I would not be upset. Like it's no. so pretty. And I showed my partner and they were like, it looks like an old person's wallpaper. I was like, no, it doesn't. You have no taste, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I would have this. I would have this in wallpaper. But then I think if you look, if you look closer, all the flowers are facing down like they're dying. That's my favorite thing about the cover. Like I feel like I look at it and I'm like, this is beautiful. And then I look at it and I think, but the flowers aren't facing up like they're growing. The flowers are facing down like they're dying which I think makes it, which feels kind of dark in the way that I just really enjoy. I hadn't noticed that actually, but now you say it, I can't, I can't unsee it. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite things about book covers when there's like something that you don't really notice, but is also there. And then you, yeah, just covers that you discover more and more as you look at them. Always good. Yeah. Mm So I want to say how strongly the book started for me. The first chapter, I got complete Rebecca vibes and Rebecca is one of my favorite books. The idea of sort of looking back at somewhere, you know, you're going to go to the Hartwood Hall. She's thinking back on it. And yeah, I really like that. And you kind of set up snippets of what we can expect. And with how you end it with the last sentence, we know that we're in for such a dramatic ride with this book. So how, what made you decide to sort of intro it this way? And was this your intro, original intro? I think if it was my original intro, the, the first chapter is in chapter one. It's very similar to the original chapter one that I wrote. The rest of the book is very different from the first draft, but the first chapter is very similar. But I can't remember whether I had the like prologue bit from the beginning. The typesetter called it a prelude, which I thought which I thought sounded much more sophisticated than a prologue. So I'm going to call it a prelude. I can't remember when I put that in. It might not have been in the first draft. It might have been in the second. It has been there for quite a long time. Like it's been there since before it went out on submission. But I can't remember if it was there from the very beginning. It is supposed to be a bit Rebecca-y. And actually, you said you haven't read Jane Eyre, but I think I think Rebecca is a Jane Eyre retelling. Or like, I think Rebecca is hugely in conversation with Jane Eyre, which is one of the things I love about Rebecca. And obviously the Secrets Part Hall is also kind of in conversations with Jane Eyre. So 
I'm pleased it has Rebecca vibes. That's good. <laughs> I think also the prelude thing is there sort of for almost like commercial reasons. And um, so I also have worked in publishing and I've worked as an editor and you know there's lots of discussion. Some people love prologue, some people don't. But especially if you write a book that is a little bit slow burn, actually giving the reader a sense that there is drama coming <laughs> is quite useful from the sort of yeah, from getting the reader engaged, I suppose. So I kind of wanted to have something at the beginning which would tell you that there are there's lots of stuff coming because I don't know if I would exactly say Hartwood Hall is slow burned. And I feel like it's probably less slow burned than the first draft I wrote. But there is drama towards the end that doesn't kick in until the end. So I wanted to kind of like give a sense from the opening that 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 is going to be there I suppose um and so it seems like a, almost like a, a rational thing to have a bit of a prelude at the start giving you a hint of certain things. With these small world sort of novels thinking like Rebecca Flowers in the Attic is one of my favorite books I think that does that, oh, I haven't read that. and hmm? I haven't read that one I have to Flowers in the Attic <laughs> it's great if you love incest <laughs> it's you're laughing it's true it's um uh, yeah but I do really sort of like it but they have these such they're just really small worlds with not a lot of characters and I'm perfectly happy for the suspense to be dragged out there's little things like did she see something did she hear something what is this secret so I yeah I'm happy to have it dragged yeah. out for a dramatic ending because it's so satisfying when you get there especially when you don't necessarily expect it. And things yeah. about this surprised me. So good. that was good. There is a line really early on in the book when Margaret, who is our main character, is kind of reflecting on this agent that she met. And she was the one who arranged her governess position. And she is kind of like, oh, I had to be really vague about when exactly my husband died because she was concerned of the reaction that she would get from the agent would that have been a real thing like this, the propriety around being widowed because she would need money like let's be realistic yeah so widows are very interesting kind of as a figure in the Victorian period because Victorians were quite sort of uncomfortable with widows existing because sort of the gender politics of Victorian society the idea was that women were meant to be wives. Like that was what, that was the ideal of Victorian womanhood, I suppose. That was what they thought women should be doing. They should be married. So society sort of thought that women were wives or, you know, free wives waiting to get married. So a widow being someone who has been married but isn't anymore is an uncomfortable thing for the Victorians, I suppose. Like they were slightly unsettled by the fact that there were widows because widows were potentially often more financially and socially independent than unmarried women, you know, who had never been married. And they were also women who were sort of like respectable. They had that social position. They had been married, you know, they'd been respectable, but now they were single, but they were sexually experienced, which the Victorian period didn't like. The idea that there were single women who were sexually experienced and respectable. That kind of, that the Victorian society kind of were uncomfortable with that, I suppose. So widow widowhood as a whole, the Victorians were a bit strange to, strange about. So for example, like there's a lot of, in lots of Victorian novels, there are sort of the figure of the widow, I suppose, is often 
someone who is like scheming to get a man to marry again and they're kind of manipulative I suppose because they have all this kind of knowledge that the unmarried Victorian heroines don't have so kind of wanting to look at widowhood through Margaret Margaret has been left without any money her husband hasn't left her any money and so she needs to work but at the beginning of the book her husband has only been dead a few weeks so it is quite improper that she is going to work as a governess she should be grieving still and she should be mourning more than she is you know the Victorians cared a lot about mourning um, and sort of mourning practices and Margaret you know she's wearing black and she is saying she's a widow but she is not she doesn't admit to this agent how recently she has been widowed because she thinks that she will think it's improper that she is going to work as a governess so soon after her husband has passed away but Margaret has absolutely nowhere else to go so this is what she does but I kind of wanted to look at yeah, I guess what it meant to be a widow in this society. I googled the difference between grieving and mourning. And according to Google, mourning is the outward expression of grief. Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of makes sense because I can't imagine that Victorian women are really able to express emotions. So because they're having to repress things so much, I guess things like mourning clothes and mourning periods is a good go-to for them like you're seen to be sad but you're not kind of having the emotions of a sad person does that make sense it makes sense in my head I think mourning wear is quite an interesting kind of Victorian tradition or I suppose it's not just the Victorian period side side as well but the idea that you display outwardly the fact that you're grieving I think on the one hand it is quite performative and it's all about you know showing that you are grieving and you know there's all sort of complicated codes about what colours you should be wearing at what point in your mourning period and how long you should wear black for various different kinds of relations. But at the same point, there is, I suppose, if you if you were someone who was grieving and you walk around wearing black, then everyone knows that you're grieving. So they can kind of like be, gent- be gentler towards you, I suppose. So and just, to a certain extent, it is all performative. But on the other hand, maybe maybe in the Victorian period, clearly displaying to people that you were grieving would have helped other people understand you better or helped other people kind of support you I don't know I've thought about this a lot it's kind of one of those interesting things that it feels very Victorian and sort of grand for the sake of it but maybe there was other logic behind it as well although Margaret obviously is wearing black but um whether or not she is really grieving so much as mourning is a bit a bit complicated I suppose in the book say apparently Romans used to wear black togas that's according to Google from when I was googling today so I don't know how accurate that is but it's very interesting that it's just a general thing that society has decided that black is the official color of mourning yeah and then the other colors I think there's a certain point in your mourning period as a Victorian widow or mourning for anyone as a Victorian woman where you're allowed to wear purple where you're allowed to wear mauve and white I think I like the first colours you're allowed to wear when you're in half mourning which is quite interesting because I don't really know why purple but that they'd obviously decided that this was a you know not a flashy colour or something so you're allowed to wear it when you were coming out of mourning and um, so I think I think Mrs Eversham and Hartwood Hall wears purple I think so. so I've edited this book so much so much and so many things have changed over the course of the book I can't always remember what ended up in the final book but I think she does wear mauve at some point or purple that just seems so complicated like the rules around mm. morning fashion it's like okay at this yeah. point now you're allowed to change color 
It is interesting though. They were they were for people that were alive not that long ago. Quite strange, or seem strange to us. Yeah, and I think they were quite strange in some ways, the Victorians. Um, which is one of the reasons why I really like Victorian literature and why I find it really interesting because the Victorians were a bit weird, but also they had all these really strict hierarchies and all these social codes, but they also broke them all the time. And a lot of Victorian literature is about people breaking the rules, which is something I really enjoy, I suppose. How easy do you think it would have been to have been a governess? Like, would Margaret have had to have been highly educated? Because it seems like they expected quite a lot from her in terms of what she could actually teach. Yeah, so to what extent, I think it would have been hard to be a governess, but it wouldn't necessarily have been, like governesses were in demand and also how people found out, like how people got governesses was complicated so sometimes they would advertise and they would get a stranger but sometimes it would be recommendations from family friends or that kind of thing you would have to be educated but you would also have to be accomplished so like you need to play the piano you need to speak multiple languages often to be a governess but actually I feel like the hardest thing about being a governess would probably be like looking after a child and catering for them and like keeping control of them um so the little boy, Louis, that Margaret is looking after in The Secrets of Harvard Hall, that Margaret is teaching, they get on well and they have quite a good relationship. But actually a lot of the a lot of the Victorian novels that I, you know, was rereading when I was writing The Secrets of Harvard Hall, which are about governesses, a lot of the governesses in them are just having like a terrible time with just horrible children. And also because governesses had sort of a very complicated class position where they were educated, but they were paid dependents, they were employed but they weren't really one of the servants um but they also weren't really one of the family and they sort of had this weird in-between stage so for example in um Agnes Grey by Anne Bronte um especially in the first place that Agnes is the children are just horrible to her and the parents say well it's it's all your fault but actually the reason why the children are horrible to her is because the parents make it so clear that they have no respect for her that the children obviously have no respect for her either um, and there's a in Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, there's a sort of subplot with the governess as well, where a very similar thing is happening, where the governess is just not able to control the children she has to teach because the parents make it so clear that they think nothing of her. But obviously the children think, well, why should we, why should we listen to her too? And I feel like being a governess, yes, the sort of learning that, requ- that was required might have been hard, but actually I think the sort of social complexities of being a governess must have been even harder. And following the rules, I suppose, must have been harder. One thing I did when I was researching for the Secrets of Harvard Hall was I read some conduct books for governesses that were written during the Victorian period by governesses for other governesses, like recommending them how to behave, which was fascinating. There was a real mix of like some very nice advice, you know, sort of remember that you were a child and make sure you kind of become a child when you're with children and sort of play with them and like engage with them on their level. But then there was also a lot of other rules about, you know, how you should dress and sort of making sure you um, continue to improve yourself and like read worthy books and don't read you know don't read exciting novels you know because they might they might have a detrimental effect on you and all of that kind of thing and it was really interesting to kind of see what what was being recommended and also how there were there was a lot of advice about you know don't make the servants your confidants like you shouldn't be too friendly with the servants but also you shouldn't be alone with the parents you should only ever be there be with the parents when the child was also there and that kind of thing there were a lot of like 
social issues to navigate, I suppose, when you're a governor in the Victorian period. It sounds so counterproductive for the parents to treat a governess with such lack of respect. Mm. The whole point is they're supposed to teach the child. And if they can't teach the child, why are they there? Yeah. I think I think it's one of the complexities of sort of Victorian social issues that I think what I think I suppose one of the reasons why the parents of a household you know a upper or middle class household in the Victorian period might have been disrespectful to a governess is because the governess is sort of not quite of their class but maybe was because if they've been educated presumably their parents were wealthy enough to pay for their education so in a way the governess is sort of like a symbol of Victorian upper class and middle class failure like for a household you know in in a society where women are supposed to get married um, and especially in the upper middle classes where that's supposed to be your aim and that was you know that was felt to be the aim in life for the Victorians that was what they felt was what a woman should be aiming for so a woman who is a governess who is earning money by her education and has effectively a career which could be quite a long career she has failed by Victorian standards of gender roles I suppose so therefore I think that's one of the reasons why there's lots of accounts of you know fictional and not of governesses being treated badly by the mistresses of the house because it's from sort of in the within the Victorian model they are lesser um which I find so so sort of sad and so distressing because actually there weren't many ways you could have a sort of career as a Victorian woman but as a governess you could and these were women who did earn money through their education and through learning and through you know imparting knowledge and they could often have a really long career you know if a governess was liked by a family and a family of multiple children which you know in the Victorian period many families were then they could be with a household for a really long time but yeah some I think sometimes they just were not were not really respected because they were viewed as a servant who gave themselves airs, I suppose, in a way. That's so sad. Yeah. Victorian class structures are sort of fascinating and complicated and weird. I think one of the things I always find about Victorians is that learning more about the Victorians does often make me sad because a lot of it is quite sad, but it's also very, very interesting. And sort of if you're interested in history, then there's sort of a wealth of like just strange intricacies to unpack, I suppose. I'm so happy just listening to you talk about the Victorians, I have to say. <laughs> There's a relationship between Paul and Margaret, and this isn't a spoiler because you tease it on the first page. Mm. Obviously, premarital sex is like a big no-no. But this kind of goes off from what you just said about she's a servant, but she's not really, and it's complicated. With him being a gardener and her being a governess, were they on like completely different social classes? or? yeah. Yeah, so they're all completely different social classes in that he is family working class, she is family middle class within the Victorian structure. But obviously there are a lot of like subclasses within that. And she doesn't have any money, but she does have, Margaret doesn't have any money, but she does have education. And she's also, she's a governor, she's also been married to a clergyman, which is quite a respectable position to have held. So fairly recently she was a vicar's wife, which was, you know, very respectable. And clergymen sort of had their own complicated social class position because they didn't necessarily have lots of money though sometimes they did but they were by being clergymen by being members of the you know leaders of the church then they were able to you know they were mixed with people sort of far above them that was socially acceptable so Margaret has a sort of very complicated social class position but she is definitely 
would be considered of a different class to Paul, which she is sort of very aware of. But also they both work in the same house. And that's the other thing that is sort of deeply inappropriate about their relationship, I suppose, is that she is a governess. She's there sort of meant to set an example, a moral example to this little boy she's teaching. But she's also having this, you know, complicated um, relationship with the gardener who's also employed by the same house, which would have been deeply frowned upon in lots of ways. Like even if they were very respectable about it and courted for a bit and then went off and got married, that would still have been considered quite sho- quite shocking, I suppose, within a Victorian household for two people working in kind of different levels of a house um, to be involved in that way. So say hypothetically, she was just a normal servant that was sort of cleaning and cooking, not one, even one of the head servants. Would that then have been more acceptable? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been more acceptable. And it would have been, yeah, and they might have got married and been servants together. Like it was relatively common for if two servants, it wasn't too unusual in the Victorian period for two people who were working as servants in a house to get married and continue to serve that house, depending on the position they were. If you were a housemaid, you were often um, not allowed to see people. So a lot of the adverts for servants in the Victorian period often if a household was advertising for a servant, for a housemaid or a parlourmaid or a kitchenmaid or whatever, they'd often have a line in that advert which says no followers, which means you're not allowed a boyfriend, basically. Um, you're not allowed to have any men coming to the house. That's not allowed. <laughs> so there were sort of rules in that sense. But it certainly wasn't like hugely uncommon um, for servant, for people who had been serving together to go away and get married or indeed to have relationships that were, you know, outside of marriage. So another Victorian novel that's quite interesting is um, Esther Waters by George Moore, which is all about a servant girl who gets pregnant after she's had a um, relationship outside of marriage with another servant at the house she works at. And one of the things I found, I mean, there's a lot of things that I found very interesting about that book. But one thing I found really interesting is that another of the servants of the house is talking to her and she says, oh, you know, it's just really unlucky to happen to anyone in a way that suggests, you know, we all know that this kind of happens quite a lot. But, uh, but we're just going to pretend it doesn't because this is a society we live in kind of thing, which I thought was very interesting. And it must be hard as a Victorian servant woman to meet people. Yeah. You know, you're not going out meeting men socially. So I guess you kind of, it, it's not surprising that they would form relationships with other servants in the same sort of Yeah, and obviously household. the seat. In, uh, in Hartwood Hall, that is a big house in the middle of nowhere. And obviously, like, there is a village nearby, but there's not, there's not, there's not much in this place. Um, you know, like you're saying, it's, quite, it's a very sort of small cast, almost like claustrophobic book, where there's just not very many people here. And especially, I think, for someone like Paul, where because he works at Hartwood Hall, which isn't really liked, the village all have their suspicions and their superstitions about Hartwood Hall, so they don't really like it. So because he works there... They don't like him and they sort of pushed him out. They don't really want him around in the village and they don't necessarily like him. So so the chance of Paul, you know, finding a sweetheart, shall we say, for a Victorian word in the village is kind of unlikely. And he doesn't have many sort of people in his life, but he meets he meets Margaret and he is really kind of taken with her. Yeah, which doesn't seem beyond the realm's possibility, especially in this kind of like isolated place where they happen to be thrown together and they're both sort of a bit lonely in their way I suppose. Did you have much of a research process into Victorian households with servants because there's a few there's a couple of houses mentioned um Hartwood Hall is one of them and the idea that there's not really many servants there maybe there could be more so 
was there a social expectation on say bigger houses to have a certain number of servants yeah definitely so Harvard Hall is a big house and there are not very many servants and there would have been more servants than there are um, in a household that was operating as it should have done I suppose so I did do quite a lot of research on that both sort of in in fiction because you can often find in novels you know they mention all the different names of the servants and stuff but you can also find online like you know lists of servants for various houses and sort of how much they were paid and sort of the the hierarchy and things like that and in in quite a lot of museums as well that are museums of old houses they can they often have records or you know information about what servants would have worked there and definitely Hartwood Hall doesn't have that many people and there's not that many people living in the house so it's not like they need a lot of servants but they they would in a in a ideal world where they were operating more as a Victorian household should have done, then they would have had more servants. But a lot of it depended on the size of the house and also the size of the grounds. Hartwood Hall has a lot of grounds and there's one gardener and there should be, you know, three really for the size of the grounds. But Hartwood Hall is kind of, has its own set of rules, I suppose. Um, and it's just a slightly different place. And I thought one of the, one of the things I kind of wanted to do at Hartwood Hall was write about a Victorian household that was breaking the rules a bit, but also still had some of the Victorian structure, but also things weren't kind of quite as they were meant to be, I suppose. You mentioned quite a few different novels throughout the book. Are these mm-hmm. favourites of yours that you've laced in? Yes, probably. I Yeah, I think most of them will be favourites or relevant books. Um, but yeah, I wanted to very self-consciously reference a lot of Victorian literature both in terms of like the books that they talk about and they read or the books that are on the bookshelves in the book but also you know there's lots of other references kind of within the book to other Victorian novels in a more sort of subtle way I suppose and partly because I just love Victorian literature and I wanted to write about that but also because the book is in a way like a reworking of Victorian it's not really, it's not exactly a reworking of Jane Eyre, but it's got a lot of Jane Eyre vibes and a lot of Ten of Welfare Hall influence. And I wanted to take lots of Victorian tropes and Victorian kind of plot structure and do something different with it. Because I love Victorian literature and I just thought I would have fun with that. Um, and, I, and, you know, it was really fun to write. So I suppose that's why a lot of the, yeah, Victorian literature works its way in there. I found it fun to write and hopefully people who like Victorian literature I think will find it fun to read but also if you don't like Victorian literature but you do like historical fiction then it's not really going to put you up I don't think um yeah and this isn't a spoiler because we find this out on page seven but our main character Margaret is deaf in one ear and I was wondering about the choice in the fact that she had an accident and that's why she was deaf in one ear rather than her having always been born with it I don't remember what consciously made me make that decision. I had always, like, since the very beginning of the book, I always, since the very beginning of, like, me coming up with her as a character, I always, she was always, um, she always had hearing loss in one ear, and it was always from, it was always from an accident. Um, I think that was just always part of her history, I suppose. I think in one earlier draft, it might have been when she was younger, and I slightly changed I slightly changed the age. In fact, I worked with a sensitivity reader, um, well, two sensitivity readers on the Secrets Part of Hall, one who was reading for hearing loss and hearing loss representation. And one thing that she said was that what I had originally written in sort of an earlier draft was a very good representation of what it was like to have fairly recently lost hearing in one ear. 
which obviously isn't really the case with Margaret. So I ended up sort of changing a few things here and there and making it so that it happened slightly later on in her life. I think um, in an earlier draft, she was a younger child. And I think that's partly because I, I like get or used to get blocked ears quite a lot of the time. So when I was writing The Secrets Part at all, I often couldn't hear in one ear for a few hours a day, but not like permanently. And actually that is a kind of different experience because if you have hearing loss for much in one ear for a much longer period of time, obviously you're much sort of more used to it. So um, there were a few things I changed sort of further down the line with sensitivity reads, which kind of affected that storyline, I suppose, as well. I liked the representation that you had in the book with, with having that. And honestly, when she was maybe in some dark places that she maybe shouldn't have been or like out in the house at night, I got some serious like anxiety through it because you become so reliant on your other senses if you can't see properly. Even like for me, say like I go to the toilet or whatever in the dark, you kind of rely on what you can hear or you can kind of sense. And then for her to have one of those taken away yeah, I got real sort of anxiety for her, especially when I didn't know what this, the secret of the house was. Like, oh my yeah. God, is something bad going to happen? <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun because I feel like I didn't mean, I just feel like I didn't mean any bits of it to be scary, but I feel like there are probably a few bits that are a little bit scary, which I think is good. You know, it, it is a gothic book and it is like, it has some ghost story elements in it. Um, but obviously, because as a writer, you you know you know everything that's going on so you sort of know what are the actual dangers and when the actual dangers are there yeah it's quite kind of fun thinking about what it is actually like to read it not, not knowing sort of the whole story I suppose bits of it are definitely this this isn't a spoiler thing but there are definitely large parts of it that I feel are teased a bit like a ghost story when when you yeah. don't know what the secrets are and there's the idea mm. that it could be something supernatural or the idea that the people in the house just have some secrets and they're just a bit weird and that not knowing yeah I I loved all of the spooky gothic vibes that I got from the book it just it made me so happy good and I love gothic literature and I feel like gothic literature is so fun and both like gothic stuff from you know the 19th century or the 18th century but also sort of um modern contemporary historical fiction or indeed stuff set in the present day that uses gothic elements and ghost story elements I always find really really fun and it's just quite fun to play with like because the gothic comes with so many tropes and it's actually really fun to use those tropes that sometimes use them a bit differently that's something that I just really enjoy. It's the sort of book you want to be in bed with a thunderstorm outside reading (laughs) with like a steaming mug of cocoa or something and just (laughs) yeah just be in bed devouring this book. This is the point of the episode where Katie and I delve deeper into the corridors of Hartwood Hall to unlock its secrets. The only way to stay safe from curses, ghosts and spoilers is to finish reading the book before you finish the episode. I make notes as I go through the book so I can kind of go back to things. And it's like page 67, hide and seek is a huge mistake. Like you're in a house where you've been told not to go in an area for reasons you don't understand and you think playing hide and seek is a sensible idea like, <laughs> mm, maybe not but is that a game that victorian children would play because that the yeah. idea of that fascinates me yeah hide and seek is an old game um so victorian children would have played that and it makes sense because actually you know that's a game that you don't need you don't need any anything for all you need is somewhere to hide mm. so 
yeah that's that's a very old game actually which is quite fun and I did look I did kind of look up yeah other Victorian games and activities and you know, think about the kind of stuff that they would have done together because if you're a governess yes you are teaching but you also kind of have broader responsibilities for the child to a certain extent and um, especially in a place like Hartwood Hall where there isn't a nurse and um, there isn't a nursemaid so Margaret kind of ends up doing a bit more of the kind of yeah entertaining Louis I suppose and yeah I suppose that's also a nice part of their sort of friendship I guess which they do have as well. I enjoyed their relationship very much I thought it was nice and he clearly needed someone to be this mm-hmm. fun positive influence in his life yeah because his relationship with his mom well the person you think is his mom now we're in spoilers is is weird the dynamic is weird so then to be able to do fun stuff with Margaret like when she takes him to church and they go for dinner with the vicar it's so just nice and wholesome mm-hmm. and I just wanted that for Louis. Yeah, I think he needs it. He's had a very like traumatic life in many ways. And also he he now we're in spoilers, he spends a lot of his time lying and he knows that he has to lie to protect his family. And he kind of gets it. He's old enough to understand enough, but also it is strange for him. It is strange. Yeah. So I sort of wanted to make sure that him and Margaret did have a nice like relationship. And also that that relationship was important to the book, because I do feel like I love a Victorian governess novel, but often in a Victorian governess novel, the governesses don't seem to do very much teaching. Um, so I did want it to be kind of important to Margaret as a person um, that she is good at being a governess. Like she is she is good at being a teacher and she is good at like bonding with children and like helping them. And that's kind of, yeah, something important in Hartwood Hall, I guess. It's a bit really, really early on. When does Louis say that to her? Page 33, this wow, this is really early, when Louis says that he wants the truth and he hate, hates lies. And from then, I was mm. like, right, well, there is something. Something's definitely yeah. not right about this family. And mm. oh, it's when you find out everything, it's just so sad on him. And there's the bit as well where she is teaching him and they're sort of doing some art classes and he paints the house and to me that just seemed weird like you've this is a child with a child's imagination and I guess that was maybe because that's all he knew he'd been sort of shut in his house for so long being able to leave yeah I think he has quite an isolated life um because you know his parents fear for his safety and so his mum's basically had to keep him keep him here and don't let him leave because they are afraid and he is also sort of afraid you know I think there's a bit where Margaret says to him oh you know you like speaking friends when you like to go to France and Louis is like no of course not I live here and I'm never going to leave um because even if Louis doesn't understand the full situation he is aware that there is a danger and that his mums are afraid of a danger and that there is something bad beyond Hartwood Hall so so he draws the house because he likes the house and because it's safe here and even if he doesn't like lying he does sort of he has a sense that there is a reason why yeah so I suppose I wanted to yes he would have imagination but also this is the place that he knows and that he understands I suppose he seems like a smart kid mm, yeah and yeah just a sweet sensitive boy like the fact he wants to pray for his sins and things like that it's like I don't really think you're sinning by lying 
I mean, there's lots of things that I think are fascinating about the Victorian period, but I feel like lying was considered worse in the Victorian period than now. Like, I feel like now, obviously, if you tell a really big lie, I feel like people consider that moral. But I feel like in the Victorian period, to call someone a liar was like a a really, really terrible thing. I think it would have had more weight than it would now. And also because sort of Louis' idea of religion is a bit is a, is a bit muddled because you know he he lives in a very religious society but you know his mums aren't really religious very much and he had, doesn't go to church um, until Margaret arrives and takes him so he sort of has read bits of the bible because that was you know it was used a lot as an educational tool in the Victorian period and he sort of knows that he knows from books and things that people go to church and that that is normal and that you know he knows in prayers but he doesn't really he doesn't really have a really strong sense of it um, so I suppose that also kind of worries about sin and that kind of thing come from there I suppose. Considering how much his mum kind of I said to me it was an overreaction I guess when you know the, the whole story it's not an overreaction but she loses her shit when Mar- she finds out Margaret's taken him. Mm. She then seems to change her mind about it quite quickly and why do you think she let him go because clearly it's good for him to actually see people it's not a healthy art environment because she talks to lucy so in my head a lot in my head there's lots of stuff that happens behind the scenes obviously you never see and you never actually know but in my head some of the times when mrs eversham panics or when mrs eversham is really concerned and mrs eversham doesn't really know how to like how to respond um, when Margaret like brings sort of challenges, I suppose, to the way the household works. And then she panics. But one, she does rethink herself, but also like she discusses it with Lucy because she, on the one hand, you know, she is she is effectively Louis' adopted mother, but also Louis' birth mother is living in the house, but isn't able to be a part of his life in the same way. So therefore she, I think sometimes Mrs. Eversham overcompensates and is kind of over anxious because she feels that she has to, do the role that Lucy can't do so in my head the reason why in that point she changes her mind really quickly and in other places too is because she's gone and had a conversation with Lucy about it and they've made a decision together and together they can make a decision that is more that is softened that is more in the middle I suppose rather than the immediate panic that Mrs Eversham has and also at the point where she is really angry that's when Margaret has just got back from church with Louis and she has come back from being away. And when she's away, she is always looking for Isabella. That's what she's doing. So she's come back from looking for one lost child to find that the other child isn't there. And she just sort of has a meltdown because actually Margaret hasn't been there very long. Do they really know they can trust Margaret? Can they really trust anyone? Have they all made a terrible mistake? Is Louis going to come back? And when Louis does come back, she is just really angry because she almost like was worried that he wasn't going to because they kind of live with this fear of, is Mr. Grey going to come? Is he going to take Louis? Are they really safe? They're kind of living in a constant, yeah, they're living constantly on the edge, I suppose, in some ways. They have this very sort of staid life in this deserted house, but actually they feel scared. So I guess that is part of it too, is when Mrs. Eversham overreacts, it's usually because she is scared. I have a few things to say about Susan, but Margaret really frustrated me <laughs> and I really wanted her to just tell Susan where to stick it because <laughs> yeah Susan is just it's, it's such a bitch but do you think <laughs> that a scandal or rumors like what Susan would have said to Mrs Eversham would have caused 
someone to lose their governor's job in normal circumstances. Obviously, this house is not normal, but in normal circumstances. Yes, I think very possibly. Um, because a lot of the a lot of Victorian society is concerned with respectability, and respectability is so important. And especially if you have someone in your house who is teaching your child, kind of from the Victorian perspective, the most always like the most important thing is that they are respectable, that they're such a good moral example. Like for in a way that was more important for the Victorians than that they were setting um that you know that they were imparting information that they were educating it was almost like um you know it was it was also considered really important that they had to set a moral example so your governess kind of had to be morally irreproachable I suppose beyond reproach and so any kind of rumor about your past or something being off um, and the rumors that all the sort of yeah so Margaret's mother-in-law accused her of being responsible for her husband's death and, and if Susan, having found the letter from Margaret's sister-in-law, um, were to show that to Mrs. Eversham and Mrs. Eversham were to know, who knows how Mrs. Eversham would actually react because this is a slightly different household. But in a normal household, that probably would lead to her being dismissed. And, you know, this was, there were not, you know, not really employment laws and people could dismiss you for whatever they wanted. But also if you were dismissed without a character reference, that's a big problem if you're a governess, because if you have been somewhere and you don't have a reference, then that that would mean you were, yeah, almost unemployable, I suppose. And Margaret is very concerned for the future of her position. And also, I think Margaret has been, Margaret is sort of aware that in a different world before she was married and before the sort of trauma in a way that her marriage has left her with, that she would have stood up to Susan Moore, but she sort of isn't able to because she is still sort of haunted by her marriage and she still feels, she carries a lot of guilt that she kind of, you know, has to come to terms with in the course of the book. So I suppose she she almost feels like she was responsible for Rich's death. And therefore, the fact that Susan is blackmailing her about this sort of hits a lot harder, I suppose. She seems very aware as well that she doesn't really have any character references because she was married mm. for so long and therefore yeah. not working. Yeah, and to be... There were widows who were governesses, but some households would prefer someone who was not a widow, who was, um, you know, younger and unmarried. Um, so she is also sort of aware that there's multiple things against her. And her deafness as well, or half deafness. Mm. She touches on that really early on. Yeah, yeah, it definitely that, comes up. Yeah, she does say in the beginning that she is concerned about her hearing loss, like, impacting how people view her, especially because the Victorians had a lot of... Um, complicated ideas about a lot of things and you know any form of like bodily difference the Victorians were just yeah had strange ideas about and Margaret's worried that some people might think that her hearing loss in one ear makes her less capable of doing her job that absolutely doesn't make her less capable of doing her job but she is aware that that and the fact that she's a widow and the fact that you know it's been quite a few years since she worked as a governess all that is kind of against her which is definitely she's definitely very aware of which makes her sort of feel all the greater need to hold on to her position at heart at all, I suppose. Susan and Louis become ill in the book. And was this a really mm. typical kind of illness for the time period? Is that why you picked it? Yeah, it was quite common in the time period. And I needed, yeah, an illness that could be dangerous, but also like not necessarily like the most dangerous thing, but one that was quite common. And I had a lot of fun, fun-ish doing the research of that. Um, like I read a, 
a book from the 1840s, like a doctor's handbook for other doctors um, with like medical advice. And that was really, really interesting to hear all the things they actually would have used and kind of the way that that disease, like the way that measles would have worked in a time without modern medicine and like how how it would have spread and how they would have what they would have known about it spread and things like that which I found really really interesting I was so pleased to see Susan get her comeuppance because I am petty and hated her but I was so impressed with how Margaret showed an more of an understanding of her and that she might have her own issues and yeah kind of background than probably than I ever would have certainly I suppose like a thing that is quite fun about writing a novel in the first person is obviously it's all from one person's perspective but all the other characters also have their own lives and in their head they are the protagonists of their own book you know so Susan has other stuff going on and like someone who does that kind of thing the kind of thing that Susan does doesn't do it for no reason or doesn't have at least like some prompting to do it and and so I did kind of want to explore a little bit and kind of have Margaret be aware a little bit that Susan does this because she has no power and she wants some and Margaret also kind of knows how that feels so I kind of I guess I wanted to draw a bit of a parallel there there's a bit when so Susan has already taken the watch so she's taken the letter for the initial blackmail material she's got the watch she's now getting the wages or she will be getting the wages that agreement has been done and she starts asking Margaret some questions in fact this might be actually after the whole incident with is it Mary where Mm. and Susan is being kind of almost friendly to her trying to get information about Mrs Eversham what she might know and kind of suggests that things are a bit weird it's just like the audacity of you to now try and be friendly Mm. after you've done all this stuff like if you'd started like this I might actually like you a bit more but you're the audacity I think Susan gets to a point where she realizes there are bigger fish to fry and that there is maybe more money to be made by someone else's secrets and then Margaret's secrets matter less because she has the household secrets and she thinks she can make a lot more money out of them and indeed you know if if she hadn't got ill what what would have happened I don't know but I kind of yeah I wanted Susan to be kind of on the trail of the secrets as well I suppose Susan just woke up and chose chaos (laughs) yeah This is all going off of the plot of the book. And I want to ask you this as a a technical question about your actual craft. How do you go about plotting when you're going to do big reveals and tease little secrets? Because this is a book full of secrets and plot twists. And I'm just so curious how you actually decided when when to pepper the little things in and when to like drop the big bombshells. So it was a very slow, slow and long, complicated process. I edited this book tons. Like the first draft was completely different. Susan used to be really nice. Like that's how different it used to be. Everything was very, very different. And I edited it a lot on my own. Then I edited a lot with my agent. Then I edited a lot with my editors. And so kind of where things fall, move around a lot. And actually, I would say, especially like in the middle of the book, where certain scenes or certain reveals fall, moved around a lot over the course of the book like over the course of writing the book because actually it's quite hard to know where to put things so it's been a lot of like lots of like trial and error does this thing work in this place oh no let's move it around and especially sort of where we learn certain things about Margaret's marriage and sort of that history that changed quite a lot over 
the course of the editorial process and but like near the ending one edit where I went through and like highlighted every passage about Richard in a different color to like go through and look at the placements of all of them and whether they should be in slightly different places and things like that so yeah lots of trial and error I suppose um, would be the main the main method of my plotting I'm glad you brought up Richard because he was going to be my next topic of conversation um he sounds like an absolute tool yeah to, to be perfectly honest and page page 87 there's a, a point when she is sort of thinking back because oh as you know let me talk let me ask you this question first so Mrs Eversham she's she writes under a pseudonym mm. and I thought that was really really cool and it this to me in my sort of mildly uneducated knowledge of of female writers but there seem to be quite a few female writers coming forward in the Victorian period more so than previously yeah Yeah, definitely there were a lot more well I suppose actually not the novel as a form because from the time the novel began it was considered like less less literary almost like less upmarket so when when the novel kind of began to emerge in the 18th century like um actually like poetry was considered much more respectable which meant that women were kind of able to there were more women writing novels than writing other literary forms sort of earlier I think because it was considered a bit more like commercial so so the men didn't care so much if the woman joined in so there were a lot of female writers in the Victorian period some writing under pseudonyms some writing under their own names um and actually like the Bronte sisters all wrote under pseudonyms but I think that is partly because they were dealing with like like um sort of more out there themes like Wuthering Heights you know I think Wuthering Heights would have struggled to be published under a female name because it was such a shocking book I think that's one of the reasons why but I think Mrs Eversham is publishing under a pseudonym like partly also for safety reasons because you know they're in hiding but she also yeah but she writes to, to get money and I kind of wanted that element of like writing and the love of books to like run through the book as well because you know that's quite fun and because also you know it's a bit of a Bronte reference I suppose I have Wuthering Heights and I absolutely love it it's the best. yeah it, it was it was one of my GCSE texts mm. so I think I got quite lucky yeah I love Wuthering Heights a lot it's one of those Marmite books a lot of people hate but I love it I think it's wonderful uh, yeah it's it is good the reason I brought that up is because Margaret reads one of Mrs Eversham's books and that's when she kind of thinks back to her relationship with Richard and that Richard would have hated the book and like to quote your book we used to argue about books or at least I had argued at the beginning and he's sort of saying to her Margaret you never read the books I buy you and she says to him there are days when I like to read sermons Richard and days where I like to read books and he describes the books that she likes to read as not good books and he thinks that books are can be immoral or like a force for sin do you think that was an actual idea at the time or is oh, Richard yeah. just a controlling tool I mean no, he yeah, is the, <laughs> yeah but no there, there were definitely a lot of concerns in the Victorian period about you know certain kinds of books being detrimental to the moral character especially for women there was a lot of concern about you know what what books were, were women reading and what would it make them think um would it make them think too much all that kind of thing and the sort of morality of books was definitely something thought about a lot in the Victorian period you know like I said when I was doing research for 
stuff about governesses and I was reading conduct books for governesses there is advice that you know as a governess you shouldn't read too much exciting literature that's the word you use which I find really interesting and you know sort of in the preface of the picture of Dorian Gray but the world there's sort of a whole debate about like can art be immoral which was obviously a, a debate that the Victorians were having like they were concerned about morality and art and the idea that a novel would corrupt you and especially it was novels you know the idea that, you know, reading nonfiction, that was respectable and that was fine, but reading a novel could be a little bit dangerous in a way. And, you know, novels did become hugely popular over the course of the Victorian period and they were read a lot, loved by a lot of people. But the idea that there were good books and books that weren't good was definitely prevalent. Richard is, like you say, he's a tool, but he is also very much a product of his time. And I wanted to look at Victorian marriage, like through Margaret and Richard, because Richard obeys the rules of his time, but in a horrible way. But also, he has been told by his society, this is what your wife should do, and this is what you should do, and these are your roles. And Margaret doesn't fit that mould, and he just doesn't know what to do. And on the one hand, he treats her very badly, but I also wanted to look at how the reason why he does that is because of the time period that he lives in, and because of what he has been told a marriage ought to look like. He can't really understand her as an individual person, because as far as he's concerned, he is she is his wife, and that's all. Because that's what his society says she is. That's why I wanted to ask about him, because I did find it interesting. We had Laura Wood come on, and we were sort of talking about Victorians and reading, and the idea, and this is something that has never occurred to me before, how reading is such an individual experience. You can never have mm. the same kind of experience or know what someone is thinking. Mm. And I guess they would have Victorians would have been aware that you don't know what someone's thinking when they read it and that's that's what's dangerous Mm. you can't police someone's thoughts and also a lot of novels you know like I said the the Victorians like to break rules and so a lot of Victorian novels do really push the boundaries and do you know break a lot of rules and discuss social and moral codes and you know criticize Victorian society the Victorians love to write social critique novels that critiqued social and cultural issues and um, which means that actually if you did read lots of novels in the Victorian period you were exposed to a lot of like radical ideas um you know something like Wuthering Heights is quite wild in its way um, and quite rebellious and you know there were a lot of novels which did push the boundaries so people in Victorian society who are very invested in the structure of the society staying as it was were concerned about the novels that thought that it shouldn't I suppose but I did really hate him on page 237. <laughs> yeah. This is just after she's had things with Paul, which was, it was cute. And she's sort of thinking, what would Richard say if he could see me today? I heard the words in my head, his voice precise and cold. I always knew you were a whore. I thought, oh, but, but no, he's dead and you yeah. deserve to, to be happy and move on. Margaret and Louis have a moment in the summer house where she suggests that because they read books together the time has come to pick a new book and she suggests a particular Dickens book and Louis just completely loses his his shit so it's the only time we really see him kind of lose control like that and we think that it's because his sister has died and probably this book is sort of connected maybe it's her favorite why did you pick that particular book for that reaction yeah so it was originally Oliver Twist and then it was David Copperfield and then I realized that David Copperfield was published too late for Isabella to have been reading it when she was younger when she was there so then I changed it to the old curiosity shop because I like it old curiosity shop more it was a slightly random 
selection of a Jacob's book, I suppose. But in a way, it's nice because the Old Curiosity Shop is a book about a child and a child dealing with difficult things that are beyond their years, I suppose. Um, so in a way, maybe that's kind of fitting for Isabella and Louis. I was just curious. <laughs> I know, like, pretty much my knowledge of Dickens is the Oliver Twist musical, probably every kid has seen. The one that comes on every Christmas and the Muppets Christmas Carol. And that mm-hmm. is it. I mean, a Muppets Christmas Carol is actually pretty accurate to a Christmas Carol, but Oliver Twist, the musical, the Oliver musical is not accurate at all to Oliver Twist. But yes, I love Dickens a lot. He's probably, he's actually my favourite author. I like Dickens more than the Brontes. Terrible confession. I like Dickens a lot, but Oliver Twist is actually my least favourite Dickens. I think a lot of people start with that one, and actually I think there are much better Dickens out there. But I really enjoy Dickens, so I wanted to get a Dickens reference in there somewhere, I suppose. Why do you think that Margaret wouldn't open up to Stevens about Susan? Even at a point when she knows that he knows that Susan is not very nice. And there's that moment where it almost feels like he wants her to confide in him. I think because to tell anyone that Susan has been blackmailing her is for Margaret a confession that she has something to be blackmailed about. And so she feels like she just can't talk about it. Because even if she could explain the truth, she just doesn't want to talk about Richard. Like the idea of talking to anyone about Richard is just, she just doesn't want to go there. So I think that is partly why. Yeah. Did Lacey give notice because she saw Mrs. Eversham and Mrs. Davis together? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I figured. Not at the time. Yeah. But when you get the big reveal. Yeah, I feel like maybe it would be an interesting one to reread because there is lots of stuff that I know in my head why it happened. And you would sort of, you would maybe get it in retrospect, but actually it's not, you know, it's not there on the page because it's still part of the mystery. But yeah, it is in my head. There's a whole, you know, there's so many things that are happening that Margaret doesn't actually know about. And does Mrs. Davies actually have nursing skills? I was so suspicious something wasn't right with her, especially when the circumstances around her sort of appearing. Again, yeah. it's very sketchy. You know, you yeah, never actually... Yeah find and out it should be and you don't see her leave and yeah Lucy's just there yeah so she she doesn't have nursing experience but she has looked after her children when they're sick before so she doesn't have like formal nursing experience but um I mean at this point in the Victorian period nursing wasn't very formalized um this is pre Florence Nightingale just um so the main experience you needed as a nurse was like look like looking after people I suppose you could act as a nurse without much sort of professional experience, I suppose, at this point in time. But she has kind of looked after her kids when they're sick before. That's mostly the experience she has. But yeah, she just wants to help. And there is a way to help that no one else will come. And so she does. And the last question I have about the actual story. Well, this is kind of thinking forward past the end of the book. But Paul, mm. what do you think happens to him in the end? Like, do you have a headcanon for him or...? Yeah, yeah, I think I do know what happens in my head. So the house burns down, right? But the the stable yeah. block where Paul lives, that doesn't burn down in my head. So he he's going to come back and he's going to maybe live there and like grow flowers in the ruins. That's what I've decided Paul's going to do. That's what I think Paul does after the end of the book. And he's a bit sad, but like he'll be he'll be okay. Did you ever consider that he might have come back in time to reunite with Margaret? No, they were never going to, all the way through, like, my 
plotting and my planning for the book, they were never ever gonna be together at the end. I didn't want that to happen and I didn't feel that that would be the right ending for her. Or to be honest for him as well, because I feel like he would have, I feel like if she had asked, he would have gone with them and given up society and the world, but I'm not actually sure that he would have, that that would have been his first choice. Um, But I think he would have done that for Margaret, but maybe that wouldn't have been right for him either. So I feel like they were never going to be together. And I think I think that will annoy lots of people. Like, I feel like lots of people aren't going to be happy with the ending. And that's kind of OK. Because if, you, if you're sad that they're not together at the end, then that means you were invested, I suppose. But but I they were never going to be together at the end. And that was always kind of my plan, I suppose, was that they were going to have this, you know, important relationship, but that it had to end. And they because they just wanted very, very different things. And that's not what Margaret really wanted or needed, I suppose. She needed a couple of good shags and then I think that was about all she needed. Because she says to him, I don't want to get married again. And having heard some of what you said earlier with people being a bit weird around widows because it's the idea that they might try and want to get married again. Yeah. I really like the fact that that's not who Margaret is. No. And her experience of you know marriage as a Victorian institution has been fundamentally bad and she just doesn't even even though it would be very different with someone who isn't Richard and you know like part of the reason why the weddings and the vicar and his wife are kind of there is to show that like it was okay for some people and like they are happy and they have a good marriage um but Margaret's first marriage was not and so she doesn't she doesn't ever want to do that again and she just doesn't want to be trapped in that way that she felt with Richard. And I think what she what she does get from Paul is is a, a sense of her own worth that she lost with Richard, that she is able to get back, but not through herself, but also partly through Paul, like that helps. And their kind of relationship and being aware that like there are there are kinds of relationships that could make her happy is important for her, but also she just doesn't she doesn't want to get married again and she doesn't want that in her life, I suppose. I like the cute moments where she notices like little touches between the vicar and his wife, like when they're handing things mm. over to each other. And it's so cute. Yeah, I sort of like that contrast, especially with the fact that it's two clergymen. Yeah. And two different yeah. kind of mm. types of marriage. I did feel invested in them. But with her saying that I don't want to get married again, I kind of like this end for her. Yeah. So... And yeah, you know, good for her for getting some, even if society would not approve. Hmm. I I think feels almost good for her to have that sort of rebellion with a man after having such a terrible time with Richard. Yeah. So, because yeah, Paul just seems a much more kind and caring sort of lover towards her. Hmm. Yeah. I think. So thank you so much for talking to me today. I have enjoyed this so much and you've taught me so much about the Victorians. Like I could just listen to you talk about the Victorians just (laughs) endlessly, I think. Thanks so much for having me. Before you go, I sort of have to ask you this as well. The book's coming out in two weeks today from the point that we're recording. How has your debut experience been thus far? Mostly very strange, also very exciting, but mostly very strange. I've worked in publishing and I've worked as an editor. So I've like, I've done this from the other side lots of times. Um, I'm now a freelance, I don't work in house anymore, but I have previously worked in house 
um, not at the publisher that publishing my book, but at other publishers. So there's a lot about the process that I know that a usual debut author wouldn't know, which in some ways is good, but in some ways is bad and just makes the whole experience very surreal. Like, I don't think I ever really understood how it would feel from this other side of the table. And it's very exciting that my book's coming out and it's been, yeah, hugely exciting, but it's also just been very surreal. Like, I don't, I don't really feel it's real. It's already out in the US and that doesn't feel real because that's happening far away. I think maybe on publication day, I will believe that my book is coming out, but I don't think I believe it, even though it's in two weeks. I don't think I really believe it. It's just, yeah, it's just been very surreal, I would say, mostly. There's been, yeah, lots of hugely exciting moments, but a lot of the time it just feels very strange. Um, But yes, it is out very soon now. So I think when it comes out, I'll believe that it's real. But until then, not quite. It must be really cool. The first day that you go into a book, maybe on publication day, possibly, that you go into a bookshop and you see your book there. Yeah. Ready for people to buy. A couple of people in the US tagged me on Instagram of pictures of my book in, the, in an American bookshop. And that was very, very, very cool to see it like on a shelf with other books, with real books. I know it is a real book, but you know what I mean? In my head, it's yeah. not. So it's very weird to see it on a shelf with real books. And um, so, yeah, I think being able to actually go into a shop when it's out in the UK and see it or into a library, like I feel like that will feel really real in a way that's very hard to right now. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, because obviously I have a I've got one of the art copies and it's like it is a book, but it's not a book. It's not out, but it's it's this weird sort of limbo place. And it's so soon. And but yeah, yeah. you deserve it. The book is I the book gave me so much pleasure. Oh, good. Thank you. So, And the last thing I have to ask you, this may be well, no, publishing is weird. So you probably are thinking about it. But are you planning something else yes I am working on another book which is also set in the Victorian period but with a very different vibe shall we say that's all I'm guessing I'm guessing is it still very secretive I don't know I don't know how secretive it is but it's always a weird yeah it's it's a sort of I feel like before I um before I knew I had a book coming out, I used to talk like more like openly on my YouTube channel about like what I was working on and stuff. But there comes a point where something is sort of more in, and something becomes a bit more real, suddenly it becomes a little bit harder to talk about. Um, so in the, in the UK, I have a two book deal. So the book I'm working on, unless they really hate it, it will be published, which is a bit weird when you're working on a book. It's the first time I've ever been working on a bit being like, oh, this, this is actually going to be published. So I really have to get it right. But also, you know, when I was working on the Seekers part with all, I didn't know whether that would be published or not. It's, it's taken me a long time to get published. I've, I've got lots of books in drawers slash on my computer that will never see the light of day. And um, so to be working on a book being like, oh, this one is actually going to be published. is quite strange. And so I feel like I don't know how much I should or shouldn't say about it. Yeah, but I've, I've, had, I've been having a lot of fun working on it. And I'm really excited about it. It's very different to Part with all in vibe, but also like, you were saying earlier the Secrets Part Hall is very small cast. The next book will not be a small cast. It will be a bit of a, yeah, a slightly different feel and a slightly broader cast, I suppose. That is very exciting. And I, you know, I can wait, find mm-hmm. out. I can live with a little yeah. bit of suspense and mystery. 
but I do know that I want to read it because I had so much fun with this. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks very much. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Katie. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast for more of our bookish content and episode teasers. I've been Lauren, and today I've been turning pages and unearthing secrets with Katie Lumsden. <laughs>